either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Well, we've got quite a cross-section of subjects this week we do. in the screening room. And we're going to say something about one of the films that I know I've never said about a movie. I think maybe both of us, but we will find out. <laughs> Keep you in suspense on that one. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we're from MadWolf.com. We're going to start out with the latest from the Fallen franchise, secret or has fallen franchise. Secret Service agent Mike Banning is framed for the attempted assassination of the president and he must evade his own agency and the FBI as he tries to uncover the real threat. It's Angel has fallen. You must really like fishing, Mr. President. <laughs> it's cold out here. Sorry. Not anything to get out of D.C. for a while. Mike, I'm selecting you for Secret Service Director. Congratulations. I'll give him my best shot, sir. Banning's on his way. I got to beware. What is that? Are they bats? The drones! The drones! There's been an assassination attempt on the president. Mike Banning, you're being charged with the attempted murder of the president of the United States. The president's top guardian angel has fallen. Can't you see that I'm being set up? They keep falling, George, and unfortunately, they keep getting up. I know. I just keep hearing that uh, that line from the 80s. I, I've fallen and I can't get up. Yeah, they keep getting up. And maybe this is the time that they should this should stay down. You know, you think of these movies, I suppose the fans that they have are coming for the action. I yeah. even thought it let down in that regard oh, as well. I agreed. Absolutely agreed. Very, very tired, kind of like the character. <laughs> because uh, Gerard Butler is back as Mike Banning, and he is. He's beat up. He's having... Insomnia problems. He's migraines, having migraines, back pain, taking all these pills. He's tired, but yet he's still debating. He he may be up for a promotion, moving from the field of the Secret Service to taking over the agency because his boss uh, they they think is going to retire. He's mulling that over. He doesn't know whether he wants to get out of the action. Right, he, because as his good friend Danny Houston tells him, we're lions. We're lions. Yeah. So, Danny Houston, does that mean anything to you at all? Or are you? <laughs> we don't want to give anything away. No, because there's totally so many surprises in this so movie. So many surprises that you'll figure out in about 30 seconds. Uh, it's just one of the many problems with this movie. It is uh, right. It's director and co-writer Rick Roman Waugh, who, you know, he did a movie a few years ago with Dwayne Johnson, Snitch, which mm -hmm. I thought was pretty decent. It wasn't bad. Um, John Bernthal, too, right? Yeah, John yeah. Bernthal. This one, this one, no, not so much. Now, let's go back to the beginnings of the Has Fallen franchise. It started with Olympus Has Fallen. Mm -hmm. No no, no great film by any means, but better on the action front. You know, oh, preposterous, yeah. stupid action. Okay, uh, I can be in for that sometimes. Then we had the dumpster dive that was London Has Fallen. Yeah, I got to tell you, London Has Fallen is so bad in every respect that uh, that this movie is actually a refreshing change of pace. This is so much more of a professionally made film mm -hmm. and not just sort of a jingoistic reason to gut a lot of people with your with your knives. I mean, the, it was just uh, appalling London has fallen. And this is in every respect a better made movie. Like, I, I felt London has fallen. I felt like 
there were uh, teenagers behind the camera. Like, it was just incompetent from <laughs> yeah. beginning to end. Yeah. Now, this one has Morgan Freeman back in, in uh, Olympus's Fall, and he was the speaker, t- Trumbull. Now he's President Trumbull. And there's a drone attempt. All these drones try to take him out. And in, in doing so, they take out Banning's entire security team. Banning is the only one left alive. So then all of a sudden, uh, the FBI starts investigating and all this incriminating evidence what? like offshore money and connections with the Russians. Ooh, that's timely. Ooh, well, and it's funny, juicy. too, because at one point, you know, the uh, the head of the FBI, she was like, she says, you thought you thought this out perfectly, didn't you? And I'm like, no, because that one <laughs> big first clue I would be smart enough not to leave that one big first clue right there at the scene of the crime. So he's he's got to be on the run and to try to get to the heart of the mystery and find the real perpetrators. Now, in doing because he so, apparently didn't see the opening act. If he had, that's right. he would know. He'd know right away. Uh, and in doing so, when he's on the run, he has to leave his wife, played by Piper Parabu, who really isn't given much to do. But here's no. here's the big thing: he has to leave his new baby. And this is where we're going to say something about a movie we've probably never said before. Say it. The baby is so good. This is one of the best baby performances. I'm telling you, you think we're kidding, but we're not. We're not kidding. This is a great performance by a baby. Um, It sounds preposterous, but then this movie is. But the baby's great. Anyway. And then he and then he <laughs> Banning goes out into the woods and finds his long lost off the grid father played by Nick Nolte. Who's not bad. I mean, he's not bad. And he, and and there are there's at least a scene between yeah. the two of them that I enjoyed. Yeah, and he brings some comic relief. And speaking of scenes that we enjoyed, here's another thing this movie has going for it besides the baby. I'm telling you that baby's good. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> After the movie, it's a, there's a really good and funny mid-credit scene really between Gerard Butler and Nick Nolte. Yeah. Uh, and that's how far we have to dig I know. for things about this movie because the action is tired. It's more like uh, uh, trying to appease fans of first-person shooter games. Right. It's so much shooting well, rather it, than really well-staged action. And, the, you know, I mean, the premise itself, right, he's, you know, he's got to evade uh, all of these agencies who would would know better than anybody how to find him, but he's got the intel because he was on the inside. I mean, it's like an incredibly lazy man's uh, born. Born, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's the thing, is that, like, you know, they, it, it, with Jason Bourne films, when he's evading and eluding, you know, you may not be able to keep up as, uh, like, you, you. if you think about it later, you might see giant gaps in logic. But in this oh. one, it's like, oh, he's... Yeah. In the woods. He literally just took a left turn, and every cop in the state is on the road, and he's just... And the, we don't know how he got away from them. And just like Bourne, he's magical. This, this has a lot of people standing around in front of computers, in this case, Jada Pinkett Smith, going, get me eyes on that! I need all the cameras! <laughs> so, you know, how exciting can that be? But yeah, it's just not very enjoyable at all. It's uh, so predictable. I mean, it's incredibly predictable. I, I, I it's laughably predictable. It really, it really, is. really is. And and still, the movie acts like they're surprising somebody. I know. With this there's plot there's, turn. there's a character that that speaks in that oh, sort of my. you know like automated. You can't understand yeah. my voice. And then when they finally show him, you're like, oh, are we supposed to be surprised by this? <laughs> yeah. We knew he was the bad guy before you introduced a bad guy. Yeah. So you know, go for the baby, and uh, <laughs> the mid credit scene or. But this one might be the Has Fallen that causes them to stay down. Oh, my God. Uh, I hope not so. much going on with Angel Has Fallen. Let's move to some better action. Lots more more bloody action. A bride's wedding night takes a sinister turn when her eccentric new in-laws force her to take part in a terrifying game. It's ready or not. 
So, at midnight, you have to play a game. Why? It's just something we do when someone new joins the family. A game. What game? Hide and seek? Are we really gonna play that? Well, the rules are simple. You can hide anywhere. We then try to find you. So there's no way for me to win, right? I mean, stay hidden till dawn. <laughs> no, thank you. Good luck. I had to play along so that I can get you out. It's insane. They think they have to kill you before sunrise. Or something very bad will happen to the family. If we don't find her and perform the ritual, we're all dead. Found her. And no, that is not Margot Robbie. I know, and everybody, and it's understandable. Yeah. When you look at the poster, mm -hmm. even this morning when we did our TV gig with Good Day Columbus, uh, one of the co-hosts, Sean, said, oh, and how was Margot Robbie? And we're like, well, we don't know because she's not <laughs> yeah. in this movie. And she couldn't believe it's not. But yeah, you right. look at her, yeah. and the actress is named Samara Weaving. Samara Weaving, and she's been in Mayhem yep. and The Babysitter. The Babysitter. She was in Three Billboards. Yeah, exactly. She was John Hawks' new, new girlfriend, yeah, yeah. so a smaller part. But anyway... But she's a really good badass in this movie yes, because she is. she is the bride who's about to marry into this sickeningly rich, I mean uber-rich family in this gigantic mansion. And they're heirs to a big gaming fortune, playing cards and then board games, all that sort of thing. And so once they get married, oh, just, honey, don't worry about it. We just have this little ritual. We always have to play. Everybody has to do it. We just have to play a game. And you have to pick a card, and that's... That's the game you have to play. Well, she picks the one card that puts her life in danger. They have to play hide and seek. Only if they find you, you're dead. And they're going to try really hard to find you. And um, one of the things that, uh, I mean, it's a quick-paced movie. You know, uh, it's just like one sort of comedic action gore set up after another after another after another of just like you know misfired uh weapons and oh there goes another maid and it's it's funny and it's clever it's not genius i mean it's fun and yeah. it also it takes some shots at the rich which i'm always behind i'm yeah. always okay with that it does it could have gotten if it wanted to it could have gotten a lot more it had a lot more of a satirical bite yes, to it. Agreed. It, it. It starts down that road and then it pulls back a little it bit. Does. Which okay, if you didn't want to get too political, I understand. Uh, but for us, it made it much of a of a lighter fare. Although right. it is, if you like this sort of stuff, and it's bloody, don't get oh, me wrong. Oh, it's bloody. If you like this sort of stuff, the horror comedies, uh, it's not laugh-out-loud funny, but it is funny, and it is well-paced, and it's got some well-defined defined characters and a pretty good ensemble cast. Oh, yeah, especially um, Andy McDowell. Boy, she just, she just really relishes this role, and I think she does a great job. She's so funny. She's like the level head, you know, in the room at every point, and, and uh, she adds a lot to all of her scenes, but I really thought the whole cast was good. Yeah, and you've also Adam Brody, always uh, good, and also Henry Zerny, who is a been he's a been a, a, that, he's a guy that guy for so long. You probably might know him best as um, Tom Cruise's boss in a lot of the Mission Impossible films, mm. especially the very first one. Uh, but you'll recognize him, and yeah, everybody everybody's good and has fun with it. And if you're just not expecting. Too much, right? Uh, as far as a political allegory, and I know not everybody always looks for that sort of thing. And it just—I think it leaves the movie feeling a little slight, yeah. but fun. Yeah, a little, a little slight, exactly right. But uh, especially as we get—I know it's only August, but as we get into that Halloween feeling, yep. which will be here with the pumpkin spice and everything else. Two weeks to it. <laughs> oh, hello. Well, this one better make its <laughs> cash while it can. But, but I think most people that go see this, if if you know what you're in for, and you and you like this, I think you'll be. Satisfied with oh, it. Oh, yeah, you'll definitely be entertained. Yeah, bloody fun.
Next up, we have a sweet adventure about a young man who runs away from his care home to make his dream of becoming a wrestler come true. It's the Peanut Butter Falcon. You let a half-naked boy with Down syndrome who has no idea how to get along in this world just slip out from under your nose. You two are close. We are. Well, then you'll figure out where he's at and you'll bring him back. Are you following me? Maybe we could be friends and buddies, bro dogs, and chill. Have a good time. I'm looking for a missing person. Have you seen him? A little man on a lamb. Make your girlfriend back there, Eleanor. Two bandits on the run. Oh, yeah! Rule number one, don't slow me down. Rule number two, I'm in charge. Hey, what's rule number one? Party? No, not party. You have a young boy with Down syndrome in the middle of nowhere. All right, well, while you've been doing paperwork, we've been doing something called living. I think it's time for us to go back now. We could be a family. Friends are the family you choose. Wrestlers got alter egos. You need a name. Falcon. Peanut butter Falcon! And as I've been saying a lot this week, the biggest challenge about writing about or talking about this movie is finding a way not to say the feel-good movie of the year. That's right. Just because that's the biggest cliche in, in movies. But this one is a very much of a feel-good movie. Oh, it really is. And it's uh, it surprised me because I was afraid the whole time. I'm not even afraid. I expected it to sort of fall into the trappings of like a, a made-for-Hallmark movie yeah. kind of a thing. I expected it to be oh, like overly sweet and saccharine and in its own way condescending. Mm-hmm. It is none of those things. None of those things. And it's got a great backstory behind it. The the writers, the co-writers and co-directors, Tyler Nilsson and Michael Schwartz, uh, met the main star, uh, Zach Gotsigan, at a summer camp for special needs. And Zach has Down syndrome. And they were talking to him, and he mentioned how he his goal was to be a movie star, Hollywood actor. And they just said, well, you know, there's not a lot of roles for people with Down syndrome. And he said, well, then why don't you write me one? And they did. They did. And that is this movie. Yeah. And number one, like you just said, it's not condescending. It's also not a charity case. Not in any way. Not in any way. He is great in this part, and it... The story very much parallels his own dreams of wanting to be a Hollywood actor. His character, also named Zach, uh, wants to be a wrestler. Right. And he idolizes this uh, kind of has-been wrestler that has seen better days called the Saltwater Redneck, who is played by Thomas Hayden Church. Great. And uh, Zach has seen these ads for the Saltwater Rednecks Wrestling School, and that's where he wants to go, to to become a badass. And with help from his roommate, Bruce Dern... Well, he's so delightful. Uh, yeah, just another addition to this great ensemble cast. He busts out of his uh, care center. It's a nursing home. And uh, runs away, and he ends up meeting Tyler, who's played by Shia LaBeouf, who is great in this movie. And they form, they, they bond over their plights. Uh, Tyler is running away from a, a big debt he owes to a, to a small-time a tough guy. Played uh, by John Hawks, yeah, another remarkable actor who is involved go. in this film. So as they take to the river, it takes on a very Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain sort of feel, very. mixed with a, a very fable type of storytelling. It's, it's a type of material that, to me, lives and dies on 
how committed these actors are to making it authentic, and they're so committed. They really are. And you 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 do believe it, even it's even even it's uh, as it moves toward its fantastical elements toward the end. It just feels like like a world that's populated by these people that seem like real characters. Also, it's got a great soundtrack. It does. Great rootsy, you know, swampy we, soundtrack. And, and we forgot Dakota Johnson. Oh, yeah. She plays the uh, the caseworker, the very caring caseworker who is in pursuit. And, yeah. uh, and she's also great. Yeah. And we were lucky enough to have one of the producers here in town for a screening, and we did a Q&A with him named David Thies, who's actually an Ohio native. Mm-hmm. So he came and, and talked to us and a, a great audience about the film. And he mentioned that when, when Shia LaBeouf uh, was considering the movie, he saw uh, an early proof of concept starring young Zach, and he said, I'll only be in the movie if he's in the movie. Now, he was going to be in the movie anyway, but that's what sealed it. And they have such a great chemistry. They do. It feels so real. It really does. And that is at the heart of what sells this movie as, as the adventure uh, toward getting to the uh, wrestling school uh, continues. And it it's just... I'm not going to say it, but it will make you feel very good. Hey, what's rule number one, George? Party. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. So I, I, I can't see anybody going to see this movie unless you are the most hardened cynic in the world and have no heart. Um, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to like the Peanut Butter Falcon. We'll shift gears completely to a movie set in 1825 when a young Irish convict woman chases a British officer through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness bent on revenge for a terrible act of violence. This is The Nightingale. We don't want no trouble. That's just the way, isn't it? You don't want trouble, but sometimes trouble wants you. I'll sell my rock, I'll sell my reel. You know what it's like to have a white fella take everything you have, don't you? To buy my love a sword of steel. What's your name again? Claire. I'm not your boy. I'm Mangana, the blackbird. I wish I had my love again. Forget the bird thought she was going to die out there in the forest. Suddenly, she was free. Oh boy, not the feel-good movie of the year. Let's, no. let's get it out right now. This is a tough watch. You have to be prepared for this because there's going to be moments in this movie where you want to turn away. So it's the follow-up of writer-director Jennifer Kent, who made The Babadook a couple of Love years ago. Love The Babadook. It's really, the Babadook is really a, a masterpiece in horror film. This and is nothing like The Babadook. It, is not, it couldn't be less like and even The Babadook. Though, and, and even though it has very horrific elements, you, you could call it more of a, of a thriller, right. I guess, than a horror movie. Mm-hmm. If you want to call it a horror movie, I'm not going to argue no. with you. But it's, we're just trying to say it's totally different from The Babadook. Well, it, it, as, as much... Exactly to the same degree that the Babadook was very internal and fantastical and claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. This one is epic and external and realistic. Very clear-eyed uh, look at at colonialism, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and we start off a, sort of a close look at what happens to this poor woman uh, played by... Aisling Franciosa. Thank you. Franciosi. Um, and yeah, she is tremendous. And she has been... She's been in, like everybody that we haven't really seen before. She's been in Game of Thrones. That makes sense. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she's great. She's so great. She's so fierce. It and it's is a, a tough part. Oh, my God, yes. But, and, but so what happens to her, 
you are 100% on board with this idea of revenge, no matter how ridiculous and, and unlikely and dangerous it appears. And that's an important thing for the director to make sure you are on board with what she's doing because what she needs is for you to believe 100% that the military in uh, Australia at the time were capable of this kind of brutality because quickly, as she tries to track them down with the help of uh, an Aboriginal tracker, Jennifer Kent broadens the focus to make you realize this is just what colonialism looks like. This, what happened to this woman? Right. It is exactly the same as what happened to an entire population in Australia, to uh, the, the, the entire native population of Tasmania. Yeah, that that is a very important point. And we should say the main, she's going after um, some, some military men led by the lieutenant, who's played by Sam Clayton, who uh, is very good in a very different role for him. It's kind of nice to see him branch out like this. I love him as a heavy. I think he does a great job with villains, yeah. and he's he's remarkable. He's yeah. remarkable and in this role. And he's just the, the the character is just horrendous. Oh yeah, just horrendous. So she's after him and his subordinates uh, to exact revenge, and she gets this Tasmanian tracker played by Baikal Gamambar. And I know I butchered that, and I apologize, but he is fantastic. He is so great because uh, the the film is is so fierce. And what he does, and it seems so unlikely, is he just, not only does he bring heart to it, but a weird, peculiar humor mm -hmm. uh, that, that first of all, makes the film more watchable because it's so difficult and brutal, but also makes it that much more heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, and you bring up a really good point because the film, the catalyst is the violence done to Claire, this mm -hmm. young woman. And then once the tracker, Billy, comes in to the, to the uh, story, then... Everything turns because then she, in dealing with him, takes on a privileged tone yeah. and looking down to him. And, and slowly she, along with we, we realize, just as you said, this what happened to you, the same or worse happened on a daily, hourly basis right. to everyone who looks like me. Right, because as powerless as Claire feels and is, she has she's got nothing on this entire indigenous population. Yeah. They all are even more powerless and and even more brutalized and taken advantage of. And I thought it's it's also very um, the word I don't want to say brave so much, but very confident stand in which how many how many times the characters say and just blame all the evil on white men. Mm -hmm. And uh, you you know you look around the world today and headlines and things that are happening, and that's a very timely statement to it make. Is. It and is one that a lot and of, timeless. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what this movie goes to show you with with a history lesson here. And uh, it's very she's not shrinking from it. She's, no, not, she's not shrinking from the history she wants you to to realize, and also maybe the current history that she wants you to consider. So it's a very very confident vision, and especially when you consider the scenes of violence done to this woman. We mm -hmm. talked about it right after we saw the movie. How differently they would have been perceived had this be, and how differently they would have been shot. Had this been a male uh, filmmaker, you know, and I also think that there w there could be people who are disappointed in the um, the way the drama concludes. Now, I don't mean the, I don't mean the last scene in the film. I mean the climax of the film, because I think and I, and I think in that case, a male director would have had trouble because of the way the focus seems to shift. But I think that she develops uh, Jennifer Kent develops. She's telling us the entire time that as bad as Claire has it, Billy. And, you know, by extension, 
his family mm-hmm. and his neighbors and everybody knows they have it worse. Mm-hmm. And so I, I personally think that a male director having had made the the decision that was made in the end of the revenge plot might have gotten some flack for it. But I feel like the way Kent handled it, it comes off OK, because Claire, when she does get a, a taste of revenge, because she's had one horrifying experience Whereas where Billy, his entire life, his in every human being he's ever loved or known, it's different for him. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Unforgiven, the uh, Clint Eastwood Western, yeah. where they talk about hell, hell of a thing killing a man yeah. and what it does to you, to you if you're <laughs> not prepared. I liked, I thought the ending, which we're certainly not going to spoil, I thought it seemed true. I really I did. I do too. I think anything else would have seemed like, uh, I don't I don't think that is authentic as the rest of the movie as authentic of a moment as the rest of the movie deserved. Agreed. Honestly. So, uh, again, you got to be ready for it, and you got to know that it's going to be a tough watch, but we really both enjoyed The Nightingale. And we'll wrap up the new releases with a documentary. Uh, after becoming a mother, a filmmaker uncovers the untold history of China's one-child policy and the generations of parents and children forever shaped by this social experiment. It's called One Child Nation. I was born in China in 1985, a time when China's population crisis was making headlines around the world. In an effort to protect its people from starvation, China has enacted a policy limiting families to just one child. I wondered if most people in China really thought it was worth the sacrifices each family made. Well, here's another one that is not always pleasant to sit through or, or, or hear about. It's not so much what you're seeing, it's what you're hearing about and imagining. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's it's very interesting because, you know, so often I think when people think about China's one-child policy, you know, uh, those of us who don't particularly remember when it was enacted, we're aware of the repercussions, which is that now that means the older generation outnumbers the, under, the younger generation, which is debilitating for both generations. But what, what this filmmaker does is peel back all of the different layers, all of the things that you didn't think about oh. that, that, that you know, con- the consequences of this particular piece of legislation. Yeah, it's the co-director who's really this, the personal story of Nanfu Wang. And when she became a mother, that's when she really started to reconsider the time that she grew up in in China. It was a policy enacted in 1979 that was made part of their constitution in 1982 and finally phased out just four years ago. It's crazy. I I had no idea in 2015. And it does a lot of things right, and it is very gripping in, in many ways as she goes back to China and talks to the people that were tasked with enacting this policy. And in some of these interviews, it reminded me of that incredible documentary, The Act of Killing. If you've never seen The Act of Killing, oh, it God. is, I'm not lying, it's the best documentary I've ever seen in my life. Holy moly. So they are talking about things they did uh, back years ago during this this policy and what they had to do to enact it. And the one feeling you get over and over almost to a person, is a feeling of shared helplessness. Right. What could I do? Yep. I had no choice. Right. What other choice did I have? And some of them still, they support it today. And, and if you, if what you're saying to yourself is, oh, they all decided not to have a second child, that's not, no. that's not what they're saying. What they all did was participate in forced sterilizations and abortions. And they were in the case when the one child turned out to be a daughter, yeah. they were just abandoned. These, yeah. these daughters, by the score 
were abandoned or sold. And then you have human trafficking uh, come into it. And it's, it's an incredible web of different impactful aspects of this policy, some of them downright horrifying. And the one thing, though, that we both thought, and mainly, and you brought it up first, um, as, as gripping as a lot of these interviews are, it only makes the omission of another set of interviews that much more glaring. Yeah, there's that one point when she is talking to one of the sort of village leaders who, who part of his job was to enforce these sterilizations. Uh, she she says that next she wants to go talk to some of the, the would-be mothers, the mothers, you know, who, who were forcibly sterilized. And you get this quick, no, why would we put them through that again? And so we never do hear from any of the women who are forcibly sterilized uh, or who who uh, are forced to undergo abortions. Right. And you do hear the one uh, elderly woman says, uh, don't make trouble. Uh, so other than that, it's, it's, uh, to me, it wasn't enough to make us understand as viewers why she didn't have any of those no. interviews. Maybe that was the case. Maybe she was denied. Nobody, I don't want to make trouble. If that's the case... As a director, we needed, to, we needed to feel that more because we're left wondering, well, okay, we're talking to people about other people. Can we talk to some of them? And we never do, and that's a kind of a big hole it is in a this big movie. Hole. It is a big hole. But she treats talking about this inhuman policy with a real humanity. Yes, she does. Uh, especially the, the one woman that was really the elderly woman who was now using the last years of her life to try to atone. Yeah, and she, she was a midwife, yeah. which means... That she, you know, you think now of a midwife, she helped to deliver babies. Not very no. often. Primarily, right. she helped to forcibly sterilize and abort. Yeah, and, and she's the one that now, she, she realizes uh, the extent of what she did. And she owns up to it. Yeah, she's she not does. shrinking from no. it. But she's using these last years of her life to try to atone. And that's very touching. And then they go into the fact of these, of these babies getting sold to uh, mainly the West and trying to track some of the down because people have brothers and sisters and twins mm-hmm. all over the globe mm-hmm. and it's very very hard to find out when when they were were taken abandoned to find out their actual uh, heritage and maybe what who their uh, relatives might be so it's very effective again not the happiest subject in the world but it's a, a history lesson that really bears repeating and and needs to be looked at because it also reminds you of the effect of Orwellian propaganda. Uh, She shows examples of the propaganda that China used to sell this policy. And then once they changed it to sell the two-child policy. And basically, and she makes a good point eventually, that it doesn't really matter exactly what any time the government is making decisions about a woman's body the government is doing something they have no business doing. Exactly. And that, as you might guess, incredibly timely for One Child Nation. All right, with that, let's go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. We've got a movie coming out on home video this week that... We liked more than a lot of people. Kind of a just a quiet little B movie horror flick called Brightburn. Yeah, it's it's a combination horror film, comic book movie. Yeah. It's basically a comic book origin story, but instead of being the origin story of the hero, it's the origin story of the villain. Yeah. you know, who's found in the woods as a baby and raised, and then when he hits adolescence, you know, these voices that he hears that tells him about his power, they basically are saying, "You need to take over the world and kill everybody." And <laughs> and uh, I thought it was pretty fun. Yeah, I did too. 
I, I really did too. Uh, just again, don't don't expect it's not going to be it or The Shining. No, but for a mean little what if Superman was bad kind of thing, and it's bloody too. It is. It's some blood to Brightburn. Yeah, we thought it was fun. The Hustle comes out this week. Not uh, fun. Not fun at all. No, and not funny. And that's a problem when you're trying to be a comedy. It's uh, Anne Hathaway. And uh, Rebel Wilson. And... Who, is, who is helping Anne Hathaway choose her projects oh, this year? I'll tell you. They've all been terrible. And you just want to go, did you know you're Anne Hathaway? Yeah, exactly. This is the, the third incantation of a movie that also was done a year in the 80s by uh, Michael Caine and Steve Martin mm-hmm. for uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So it's basically the same. They just flip the genders. They're con artists and they're trying to uh, run a, a contest to see who has to leave the turf and... My Lord, is it not funny. I mean, it is embarrassingly not funny. So uh, let's move on. The Sun is also a star. Uh, one of the Well, late- it's better than The Hustle. <laughs> one of the latest YA romances. It checks off. How many times are we going to say this? Have all of these movies, these YA romances, just check off all the boxes. Now, this one, I will say, has it tries to be a little bit more, and in some cases it is a little better than most. The two, the two stars are... They're talented, even though they don't have a lot of chemistry. Yeah. That's a problem. It is. But it also tries to shed light on the immigration debate. Mm-hmm. Um, so I give it credit for that. But still, it's just still those, the YA formula that uh, I don't really love. Whew. We just keep going down the, the, the meter here to A Dog's Journey. Oh, so bad. So bad. You know, if you like these, I know people love dogs. I love dogs. I love dogs. I don't like bad movies about dogs. No. And that's what this is, A Dog's Journey. The Tomorrow Man comes out on DVD. That's another one that wastes veteran talent. Yeah, it's 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 definitely too much. Look how wacky these old people are. Are they in love? What next? Mm-hmm. And the, the, in, in this case, it's uh, John Lithgow Blythe and Blythe Danner. And uh, it's too bad because they're they're better than that. Uh, also out on DVD this week is I Trapped the Devil. It's a little indie gem. I mean, it isn't brilliant, but it is very effective. It's well made for a, for a small, low-budget movie. It packs a wallop. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So uh, that's the lobby hall this week. We look forward to next week when, can you believe this is going to be Labor Day weekend? No way. Next week? No. What's going on here? We've got the fanatic, John Travolta in a Fred Durst. Yes, Limp Biscuits, Fred Durst <laughs> uh, directed movie. Loose, a very provocative movie we just saw. Anxious to talk about that. Don't Let Go, Playmobil the movie. Wow. What? I know. I Are think it's serious? because it's because a Lego movie made so much money. They're like, what other oh. play toys can we make movies about? All right. And also After the Wedding uh, comes out. Mads next- Mickelson. All right. We always love him. Love him. So we'll talk about those next week. In the meantime, let us know what you thought about this week. Uh, Always glad to talk the movies. Keep the conversation going. Easiest way is on Twitter. You can find us at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Instagram and Facebook, it is Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and other fun stuff, including our horror movie only podcast, Fright Club. That's all at madwolf.com. So we always appreciate you stopping by the screening room. And wherever it is that you listen, if you would take a moment to to subscribe, rate, and review, we would appreciate it. So until next week, she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.